This is a Federal News Network podcast. The government releases too little information about bid protests. More information would help companies and the government craft better procurement policies and measure them over time. Those are the contentions of my next guest. He wrote a program that analyzed 7,000 protests spanning 20 years, and he's not even yet a lawyer. George Washington University law student Will Dawson joins me now. Mr. Dawson, good to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And your paper has really made its way around legal circles concerned with bid protests. Tell us what it is you were setting out to do here with this piece of research. So the original point of it was simply to analyze some very fundamental information from GAO's bid protest reports. After my initial findings, uh, I presented it to some of my professors at GW, and they expressed interest in trying to find more data, and I was able to generate that. And it sort of went from there. In discussing with practitioners, I found there's a lot of data missing and eventually just came to the realization of exactly how little information about the macroscopic bid protest process there was currently available. So if there was so little information available, what were you able to analyze then? So I was able to analyze the protest decisions uh, issued by the GAO. Unfortunately, uh, the Federal Circuit decisions were not available because of some programmatic nuances these types of programs do best against text that is very formulaically laid out. Um, there are aspects of the GAO decisions that favor that. Unfortunately, the COFSI decisions are a little bit more dynamically written, and so they're not as able to be processed. But if the GAO is not giving out enough information about the cases, then what I'm driving at is then how were you able to get that information and analyze it? That's a good question. So basically what it was is that they only issue nine data points every year in their congressional reports macroscopically on what's going on. So what my program was able to do was to dive into each individual case, extract data from that, and then collate that data and analyze it once again on a macroscopic level. I suppose they, they do technically release the data, but it's distributed across such a wide number of documents that it's not really feasible for someone to ingest and, and analyze it in their head. Um, as it's presented. So I was basically able to extract information from that and condense it into a report. So almost like a bot approach to go across those documents and grab that data and put it into an algorithm. Would that be a fair way to put mm -hmm. it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's a, that's a good way to put it. And what were some of your top line findings then when all of the data can be analyzed? My primary findings, and the paper is available now on SSRN, I won't go into too many of the details, but it was largely there. Uh, 26 different protest grounds that I found over time uh, that the GAO tends to sustain. The top four grounds for a sustained protest were unreasonable evaluation, solicitation. The solicitation was awarded or rejected for reasons outside the scope of the solicitation. Uh, agencies' conclusions were unsupported by the record. And then there was a lack of meaningful discussions being held. So, I mean, I think that's really helpful for practitioners, right, to look at, okay, fine, there's an error in this protest, but it's something that we're going to be upheld on with the GAO. I think the most interesting finding personally was not actually one that I necessarily generated data on, but it's the question of when a protest is sustained, does a specific type of protest end up, is that likely to result in the protester being awarded the contract downstream? Of course, that a protest is sustained does not mean a contract is then subsequently awarded that protester. So that to me, I think is the biggest piece of missing data, right, is as a business owner, are you being effectively rewarded for raising this concern with the government 
which I appreciate it. it may not be an attractive framing to some, but I think ultimately for business owners, that's the question that they're pursuing uh, when they file a bid protest. In other words, even when they win, they lose. Exactly. We're speaking with Will Dawson. He's a third year law student at George Washington University. And how do you think this information, if it was available widely, could change the process or help people that are bidding and protesting and maybe help the GAO itself? So I think the information that I've processed is helpful in analyzing long-term trends. What I would really like to see is that the program that I wrote is also able to be applied forward. And I've uh, set it up to be plugged in to the existing system and extract data from it. And I think what would be most helpful is identifying year over year what trends are evolving for policymakers, as well as contract attorneys to advise their clients, uh, like I said, about what's being upheld. I think the most important thing really is for assessing the health of the bid protest system. You hear a lot of people that are proponents of it and detractors of it, but ultimately it's impossible to make an informed decision on this when we don't have enough information. I like to equate it to a fire department whose only annual reports are how many fire trucks are sent out into the field. That's an interesting figure, but without knowing how many actual fires there are or how many alarms were set off, right? That figure is useless. Equally, uh, the information issued in the GAO's annual reports are interesting, but they lack the broader context to really inform people about what's going on in the system in substantive ways, because ultimately bid protests are meant to be a regulatory mechanism. So without knowing you know, how many of them are validated and how many of them are wasting the government's time, you can't really say whether or not the system is broken. And yes, they do tell you how many protests are filed every year, but you can have multiple protests on a given contract. So you could have a highly defective contract that's creating a lot of protests. You could have a lot of defective contracts that are only getting one protest. And currently we can't determine that number. And as such, the system can't be improved. And just a detail point, you looked at protests that were lodged after contracts were awarded. That is to say, not at the solicitation stage. It was both at the solicitation stage and after award. Uh, to my understanding, I have been able to analyze every published merits decision from 2000 to 2019, both pre and post award. Because pre award and solicitation level protests have really been on the rise, especially for some of the government wide acquisition contracts that agencies are trying to establish. So that's a good piece of insight. And then you've also proposed a type of form or data gathering framework in future protests that you've proposed that could maybe give this information from now on? Yes. So to my original point about the program that I wrote, we have information at a very, very high level with those nine data points. And then we have the discrete merits decision. Merits decisions only cover about 25% of protests that are filed. And so what my program proposes is to extract data on every single protest that's filed uh, moving forward. You would, it would end up with 23 different data points. 15 would be entered. Eight would be extrapolated from there. What that would empower you to do is then understand what happened with denied protests and sustained protests pre-award and post-award, and just give you a lot more granular insight into the system. Uh, the way that it's set up, it programmatically extracts the data. So at most, depending on the data that's available, of course, I don't know what the GAO actually has on hand. At most, it would be a minute or two of additional work per protest. And if a award is changed to a different contractor or that kind of thing happens that you said doesn't happen necessarily, but if it does switch, that's beyond the GAO involvement, though, isn't it? That's between the agency and the original bidders. So it seems like you would need the contracting officers perhaps to have a reporting requirement if something changes in terms of the award after the protest is finished. Yes. Yeah, so, and I guess this is what I was getting to about the systems integration. Depending on how much information is shared, 
you should be able to extract that data against some of the information that's published by USA Spending. One of the most compelling things as a way of framing this issue is that the GAO releases nine data points every year. USA Spending releases 280 data points on you know millions of contracts a year. So they're releasing, I think, like 1.8 billion data points right on everything that the government's doing. GAO is giving us nine. You know, there's sort of a Goldilocks zone there in between. The government's clearly not adverse to this information being out there. And some of the information, as I said, would have to be drawn off USA spending or other sources. But I do think it would be best for the information to come out of GAO just because they are sort of the de facto protest clearinghouse. And has GAO seen your report? I'm not sure. Um, I heard from people that they have. Uh, They have not contacted me. I'm not sure at this point. All right. Well, give them a call. They tend to pick up the phone and talk. So that's my advice, <laughs> having dealt with them quite Certainly. a bit. They're, they're very open to that kind of discussion. Will Dawson is a third-year law student at George Washington University. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on, and you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.